future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Everybody, everybody, welcome, welcome, welcome back. It's been a while. It's been a while. It's been a combination of Thanksgiving, uh, me getting the flu, uh, me getting behind in my work. (laughs) Uh, But here we are back again. Uh, It is Friday, December 2nd, 2022. Welcome to Raging Chickens Out to Coop Podcast. This is Ken Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken, and we've got Amy Connect back on the show today, everybody. Whoop, whoop, whoop. And each week we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. You can help support this show, becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. And a welcome to our new Mastodon community, everybody. Yes, as part of the Twitter exodus, Raging Chicken is now on Mastodon. You can find us at Mastodon and at rcpress at union.place. That's at rcpress.union.place. If you want to go directly to the link, you can go https colon backslash backslash. You know how that works. Union.place slash at rcpress. That's union.place slash at rcpress. And thank you to everyone in the Mastodon community, especially the folks at the union.place instance who have been uh, awesome and welcoming, um, so incredibly helpful um, to navigate it. Because uh, as you may or may not have heard, um, Mastodon is a, is a different animal, no pun intended, than the bird site. And uh, it's uh, it, it takes a little time to get used to and kind of figuring it out, but it's open source, community-based. It's a really fascinating and really lively and very engaged community. Uh, very happy to be over there too as well. And today will be is the first day that we've been able to promote this show on Mastodon. So everyone who's listening in from Mastodon today, thank you for joining us. Uh, welcome into the Raging Chicken community. And thank you for welcoming us us into yours. Um, so you can also help out support the show uh, by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. And hey, you know, we can't let Paul Martino and his oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Level Fields to launch a truly community-rooted pack to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work and beat back the power of big money. You can get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. And this is the year, folks. Right, Midterms are passed, all the big money clears out, and now we are focused on school board elections that are coming up in 2023. This is what this pack was designed for. This is what we need to help support our candidates now and keep the organizing go up because we cannot forget that we've got next round of elections coming up that are going to be consequential for what happens in our school districts. So check it out, ragingchicken.levelfield.net. 
Now, on today's show, yeah, we got a bunch of stuff going on today. Uh, we're going to talk about the railway strike and the Democrats' debacle. Uh, we're also going to look at the uh, largest higher ed strike in history at the University of California. Now, that is nearing an end as some tentative agreements are reached, but uh, there are folks that are out there saying that this is uh, may kind of mark a sea change in what's happening in higher ed. We shall see. Uh, Twitter, of course, is in tatters thanks to, uh, you know, our uh, the new right-wing self-appointed fascist dictator of Twitter, Elon Musk. And uh, so uh, there's been uh, a real kind of interesting kind of mix-up happening in the social media, political social media scene. Um, so we'll talk a little about that. And we'll also talk about, yes, as part of that nice little uh, new branded Twitter, uh, we saw the right-wing hit list start circulating on Twitter. And yes, yours truly here at RC Press, uh, we were on that list. And you'll recall that we had uh, Amy Connect was on in the past to talk about the Magnolia Mothers. Well, they got a big shout out in uh, the New York Times, I believe. Isn't that right? Yes. Yes, New York Times is fantastic. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, Remind you about what awesome work that they do. Um, It's pretty cool. I'm losing all my places here. We're also going to dip in a little locally. Palisades teachers are still without a contract. That continues to go on. Southern School District starting to see some anti-union campaigns. There's some like sneaky stuff that's happening there that makes me super, super skeptical. We're going to check that out. Um, rumor has it, uh, well, we're probably going to see some more and more reporting on this coming up over in the Bucks County Beacon. I'm pretty sure of it. Um, but I'm being told that uh, there's a lot of stuff that's happening in the Southern School District that is, quote, not good, <laughs> unquote. No. And we're gearing up for some big battles ahead for higher education. It's both here in Pennsylvania with the state system of higher education, um, but also more broadly for the uh, you know public higher education more broadly. Uh, the UC strike, University of California strike, is uh, one indication of what's going on there. Um, but we're seeing waves of consolidations and schools shutting down. Um, all under the auspices of things that we can't control that are out of our hands, which is just a bunch of nonsense, as we've talked about here. So we're going to be doing a lot on this show over the next year, really unpacking some of that stuff as as the uh, ABSCA faculty, which I am one, um, our contract will expire in June, 20, uh, June 2023, and we are officially in negotiations now. So lots ahead on that. Now, for more PA Progressive Talk, tune into the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook. Subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcast. Head on over to thericksmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And you've got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast if you're not already. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast, Rock the House. And you know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast at Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And attention all you gamers out there. The Game In, that's with two N's. The Game In is a Quaker Town-based, black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything for Retro N64s, latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops. And kids get discounts when they get A's in the report card. Come on, you can't beat it. Check them out on their Facebook page or follow them on Twitter at, at the Game In with two N's. If you got a question about a game, look for something hard to get, shoot them an email or drop them a message. You can email them at thegameinpa at gmail.com. That's thegameinpa at gmail.com. 
A shout out, as always, goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at @songadayman. That's at @songadayman on Twitter. And we are back for Out the Coop Live. Yes, Out the Coop Live is back too as well. This coming Monday, December 5th at 7 p.m., I welcome Raylan Roberson to the show. Raylan is a field director for social media monitoring at the Common Cause. And we're going to be talking about Common Cause's programs for pushing back against waves of mis- and disinformation in order to defend democracy. Uh, it's going to be a fascinating conversation. Um, the work that they're doing there on Common Cause, it's, um, you know, by marshalling kind of armies of volunteers um, to join in and kind of making sure that we're defending against mis- and disinformation that is looking to, uh, you know, turn our democracy on its head. Um, pretty awesome work. I'm looking forward to that conversation on Monday. And look, if we want a progressive future, we need progressive media. Support, support Pull No Punches, homegrown progressive media today. Become a patron of Raging Chicken for as little as five bucks a month. Just go to patreon.com slash rcpress. Look, we're here for the fight, but we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media in the movement, the movement in the media. Become a patron for as little as five bucks a month by heading on to, over to patreon.com slash rcpress today. Uh, but for now, I am so thrilled to be sitting here and welcoming Amy Connect back to the show. Amy, welcome. Thank you. Hello. It's good to be back. Yeah, I tell you, it's been uh, it's been a long time, um, and that is mostly on me because I have my life has been in kind of like disarray uh, for the most part. <laughs> you know, I'm telling you, it's uh, my uh, just my workload was crazy. Uh, you know, I I got the flu over over Thanksgiving. There's like all things that are happening and kind of like you know in in just life. You know, the life kind of stuff that has uh, uh, made things crazy. Yeah, <laughs> most definitely. Well, I mean, that too, and I have been just incredibly busy, so, like, I don't have set days off anymore, so it just, it makes for scheduling things a little on the difficult side. Yeah, but today, we are here, folks. Yes, we are. Yes, we are to talk about uh, everything that is uh, going right and going wrong. Well, maybe not everything, but we're going we're gonna to talk about some of them. <laughs> we're here for way too long for everything. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, Amy and I have had, you know, I'm going to try to prevent this today, but Amy and I have had a, uh, a habit of kind of like talking about stuff and then like, oh, crap, two hours just went by. <laughs> you know, it's like, so uh, we'll try not to put you through everybody through that today. But a uh, lot of stuff going on. It would be crazy to think that we could possibly cover everything that's happening. But there's been um, some really significant stuff. In addition to like what I mentioned at the top of the show notes, I mean, uh, Hakeem Jeffries has been just elected to the, as a new House leader um, at the kind of a national level, um, which basically kind of just overlaps with uh, what we're going to be talking about with the railroad strike and the Democrats debacle and what this means going forward. Um, but, you know, there's like things like that that is going on. There's all sorts of kind of uh, leadership issues that are uh, that are happening both within Pennsylvania and at the national level. Um, we will s slowly be unpacking them over the over the next several weeks and months and years, really. Um, but today we're just going to kind of uh, dip our feet back in and some of the big stuff here. Um, but, uh, where do you think we should start today, Amy? What do you want to pick up? Oh man. Uh, all right. Let's see. I think we should start with the railway strike that has yeah. been just, you know, in the news the past few days. Um, it's, uh, that and, and either that or Twitter. So <laughs> yeah, let's start with the railway strike. That let's start with, good. uh, you know, uh, fight working class and Democrats who are selling people out. It's just, you know, 
spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and it seems like it, it was it was incredibly disappointing. Uh, I knew that the administration was getting involved, you know, with these negotiations between, uh, you know, the, the, the railway companies and then their unions and the workers. And it's not just like, you know, one particular like this is a big thing. Right. Because it's not just yeah. one group of people. I do believe that there's like 10 or even more than that, different. There's twelve, yeah. Yeah, there's twelve, 12 union groups, yep. um, and the Biden administration basically, you know, decides to get involved to to push through a negotiation because if there is a strike, I mean, it is going to, it, or it could have the possibility of affecting, um, you know, commerce for over the holiday season, shortages, you know, and, and possibly even pushing, you know, inflation even higher than what it already is. Um, but the way that they did it, I just, I really felt that, you know, the Democrats definitely did the union workers dirty. Yeah, 100%. Well, could, we could, we should say, like, we expect the Republicans to do the union workers duty, right? So that's, that's kind of like expectation. We know that the Republicans are going to sell out um, workers, right? They're going to do that every single time. Um, but to see a party, uh, you know, again, I mean, <clears throat> I don't think it's going to be a surprise to anybody who listens to this podcast that, um, that, uh, that we would look at, you know, the Democrats with kind of suspect eyes when it comes to their supposed commitment to working people. Um, uh, we haven't seen it kind of step up. But famously, you know, Barack Obama promised in his campaign to uh, put on a comfortable pair of shoes and join folks on the on the um, on the picket line. Yeah. Apparently, misplaced those comfortable shoes on his first day in the White House and could never find him. His entire administration. So, um, you know, we get that. That's pretty consistent. In what's happened in terms of the new kind of professionalized uh, Democrats? You know post 1970s um but you know and we should we should say here that you know the 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 crazy thing about all this and the reason why congress even got involved in this has to do with uh, you know the the railway labor act which is which is a completely separate kind of labor regime um than say the uh the national labor relations board um and what had happened in you know in the legalization of the union movement in like the 1930s and 40s and things like this um in part because of the massive railroad strikes that took place back in 1988 or 1888 um Mm -hmm. so you have this this separate regime and because of um both airlines and the uh, and railways because that they uh, have such an impact on kind of interstate commerce and be able to move goods and people across the country. Um, they are still kind of under this separate regime. And so there's all these kind of crazy like cooling off periods. And so this is why this has been dragging on for so long, <clears throat> where they come to a tentative agreement, there's a cooling off period and that they reject it, there's a cooling off period. Um, and so finally here, right before the holidays, uh, the Democrats, um, particularly led by Joe Biden, said, Okay, uh, we're going to use our kind of authority under uh, the Railway Labor Act to basically um, to uh, force a uh, a contract right between the uh, union members and the company. Now, what should be said here, and this is kind of what Amy was talking about there, about the way they did it. um, They didn't have to just accept the tentative agreement that the company wanted. Right. They had the ability to basically change the contract as they will. And so what they could have done is had one bill, right? And they said, yeah, okay, we'll take, you know, you know, uh, Marty Walsh, you know, the uh, Secretary of Labor helped negotiate this contract. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to take what Marty Walsh wanted uh, and Marty Walsh kind of negotiated, but we're going to add in seven sick days, right? Because that really was the crux of the problem is that not only do these union workers not get 
paid sick days. But if they take more than a couple days because they're sick, if they miss work more than a couple days, they could be fired for it. Yeah, exactly. They definitely... Exactly. So there we go. So we have Congress kind of takes up this legislation. Joe Biden urges them to pass this before the holidays because of all the reasons that Amy had just said. Um, And Congress decides or or the the House of Representatives under Democratic Party leadership in its lame duck session. Right. Where there's very little stakes. Right. Where they where, you know, they don't have to worry about, oh, we're just about to get elected. No, they could have put in those sick days. And this is what Bernie Sanders had been arguing. This is a lot Mm -hmm. of progressive arguing should have been one bill. And vote that kind of up and down and put Republicans in a really difficult position to basically say, like, oh, you're going to send you're not going to agree to this agreement because why? And you're going to send the country into chaos. No, instead, they break it up into this kind of like, you know, two different bills and they kind of say, well, we put them together. But of course, it gets to the Senate. And because the Democrats in the Senate don't want to get rid of the filibuster, um, the bill passes by 51 votes. However, it doesn't meet the 60 vote threshold. And therefore, um, the sick days are out, but the kind of austerity agreement that the employers wanted is in. So there we have it. Yeah. And it's not even, and like Kevin and I were discussing before the show, it wasn't even, they weren't asking for an unreasonable amount of days, you know, because of the way that they are scheduled, it's really inconsistent. It makes it hard for them to schedule appointments or even to make a point, you know, just even to get to an appointment that's already made. Um, and then, like you had said, they were being penalized for going to a previously scheduled doctor's appointment. And they ended up not being able to take off that day for whatever reason. And, and basically just having a set amount of these sick days and then to have – then to, to, to not give it, – it, it's ridiculous. They weren't asking for 50. They weren't asking for unreasonable things. It really is just about a, a, a few commodities or, a, or you know – a few benefits right there that I think we all can agree that are, are pretty normal, right? Like I, I've worked for a lot of different places and while it hasn't been great everywhere, um, most of the time you get a certain amount of days that are like allotted for sick time. Right. You know, if you don't get vacation time at your job, you know, you most of the time you accrue like PTO, paid time off or some kind of sick time, you know, because it does happen and most companies recognize this. And then for for the Biden administration to basically just like ignore that, you know, not push for that even more so. And then for have these senators to vote against. <laughs> what was it? Seven, seven or fifteen? I believe it was. You know, um, they, they, the administration wanted fifteen originally. It was like seven sick days. And to not give them that, like, how many sick days does does uh, congressional members get? Right. It's absurd. Right. Completely absurd. Exactly. And you know, and, and part of what's been going on here, and let's put this in context too, is you know, there's look justifiably show. I, look, I know that. Um, you know, I've been involved with the labor movement for as long as I have. You, you know that most people are not familiar with union contracts, right? Most people um, don't know the kind of back and forth and all this. And because of what we're generally fed from, you know, our kind of, you know, mainstream news media, uh, we keep on hearing, you know, oh, a crisis and all the crisis and oh, God, and, you know, companies are just not the money and blah, 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 blah. Right. Well, the thing is, is that the the. The railways um, have basically have been exer- exercising a default kind of monopoly for quite some time. Um, <clears throat> yes, there's different companies 
but those different companies, each one of those companies has a specific region that they dominate, right? So there's not a lot of places that you can go otherwise. And many of these companies have been kind of bought out by holding companies or kind of change of leadership. And what they have been, they've been basically on about a, about a decades long, really more than that, but specifically in the past decade or so long march of austerity, right? About kind of eliminating kind of the workforce. They eliminated something like 70,000 workers over the course of the last 10, say 10 years. That's a huge percentage of the workforce. They've been pushing for things like, okay, you know, trains, like long distance trains, uh, you know, there's, there's a requirement in a union contract that there has to be a minimum of two people right, to run those trains because you're going long distances, you're carrying heavy cargo, sometimes hazardous, and, you know, you want a second pair of eyes, right, if not for anything but just to keep everybody awake, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, the company's been pushing to take that down to one, right? Um, and, you know, there's all that kind of stuff, eliminating kind of numbers of workers. And so they're basically operating at bare bones capacity at this point so that workers, you know, there's, there's not a lot of flexibility because if somebody takes off, Right. Well, there's so few workers now. If somebody takes off because they're sick, there's a scramble to kind of get those on. And God forbid you have something like, oh, I don't know, a pandemic, right, where people are getting sick left and right. Suddenly you have no bench. Right. There's no place to go for additional workers. And so what they've been doing is instead of saying, OK, we need to make sure our workforce is healthy and hire some more workers back. What they've been doing is saying, no, we're just going to squeeze the workers. And if you can't show up to work. Right. Um, because you're sick, what they would say, well, you know, you're going to lose your job and we'll replace you with somebody else who wants it. And that works very good for the companies. And they have made record profits. Yeah. Right. This is the story. Record profits over the past the, the past couple of years. Right. More so than that. But these past couple of years under the under which this kind of contract is being negotiated, the money is there. Right. It's the corporate CEOs and the kind of the stockholders, the major stockholders of their board of directors and all that stuff who are getting huge money. Right. They're the ones that this the, the employers sought to protect and ultimately what the Democrats helped support um, kind of here in Congress. So it's pretty, pretty sickening. Yeah. I mean, and it's worth to note, too, is that, you know, a lot of these industries, I mean, you could say this for for the railway workers, you could say this for um you know, with like healthcare workers, uh, even, you know, simple as simple as like the airline industries, you know, before the pandemic, a lot of these industries were struggling. They were already short staffed. They were already having problems. And then, you know, the pandemic really just kind of exasperate or exasperated, you know, these, these already, these issues that were already becoming a massive problem. And they really threw them into the spotlight. And then people, it, it just made things worse. Right. So now, you're starting to see a lot of pushback, I'm, you know, from healthcare workers, from, you know, these railway workers, from these different, you know, working class people. Um, and we're, I, we're definitely seeing a resurgence of, of strikes. You know, we've seen everything going on the past two years with something is like, you know, Starbucks workers, baristas, yep. <laughs> you know, unionizing. That's not something that I think most people were expecting it to pop up in. Um, but you have these larger industries and you're starting to see it. I mean, even right here in Pennsylvania, uh, the other year, there was there was a there was a nurse's strike at a nursing home in Montgomery County. You know, that's not something that you see very often, at least in this portion, you know, in, in healthcare in this portion of the country. Right. You might think of Pennsylvania being very like pro union, but in, in healthcare, not so much. Um, 
And then part of what, you know, the administration did and, and why they did, you know, these workers so dirty is they really mm-hmm. undercut the purpose of a union, right? So like if you are not getting fair wages or or, or stuff like that or like, you know, sick days, <laughs> something as simple as that, you know, you're one of uh, one of the the tools that you have as a union is the ability to strike, right? It's the ability to shut down, you know, whatever that commerce, whatever that industry is, because you're upset with it, you know. And that's that's what the Biden administration essentially took away from these unions, right? Was their ability to do it. So if they strike now, it is illegal. Mm-hmm. Like it is a an illegal move, um, and right. has some serious consequences. And it just renders the whole process to me is is just mute right like just why even bother having it at that point yeah 100 i mean think you know and i think that you know look i mean ultimately what's got you know doubt what's got to happen is that you know the union movement is gonna have to get to a point where they're gonna say well you know what we're gonna strike anyways yeah right um and you know that because let's remember is like when the uh, major unions kind of won their their original contracts, whether it was in whether it was teachers unions, whether it was coal miners, whether it was railway workers, um, they were striking and they were organizing and they were doing work stoppages and essentially and they were not legal. Right. Strikes were not legal. We've had long, bitter fights in this country, um, you know, for for centuries, really, over labor, whether it's you know, starting within slavery, right, <laughs> going up to prison labor, um, and even just the kind of rights of working people in this country. I mean, if anybody listens to the Rick Smith show, um, you know these stories. And, you know, so uh, at some point we got to we have to get to that point. But the, re, you know, reality is right at this moment, the, the union movement is one. You have a leadership in the union movement who is, you know, again, this is changing a little bit. But it, the, the of the you know, legacy unions, they are not of that militant kind of um, kind of mindset. Um, again, that's beginning to change. Um, and, you know, you don't have the kind of organizational solidarity um, that would lead to people willing to kind of walk off the jobs and put themselves in legal jeopardy. Um, and I, again, all of that is understandable. This is not to fault the kind of workers in this point. It's, a, it's to speak at the reality of where the labor movement is right now, um, which is why, you know, you have something like this where, you know, they could have just come up and said, you know what, we're going to, uh, the, the, by they, I mean, you know, President, Bi- or President Biden and Congress, uh, Democratic leadership in the House in particular, could have just come up and say, look, we're going to force the issue. Right. So we put in the sick days here. And if you don't want to vote for uh, for the contract with the sick days, well, you know what? Let the workers fi- let the workers of the company work it out on their own, like we do with other private sector strikes. Right. Mm-hmm. And but the problem is, of course, they know that if the workers go on strike. Right. Then suddenly the public is involved. Right. Then all of us are. And yes. And the way that strikes work, if anybody has been a part of a strike and been part of the labor movement, is that initially what happens, the first shock. Right. Is that people get mad at the workers. Right. That happens. Right. Because people don't know a lot about what's happening in kind of these disputes and stuff. They only know about, oh, no, my inflation. Oh, no, my Christmas gifts. Right. That's what they think. But then, right, what the strike enables is for those issues then to become, make, to, you know, become pop- popularized. Right. So it becomes publicized and people start to learn about what the issues are. And when people start here, like, wait a minute, I'm not getting my Christmas gifts because you want railway workers to work while they're sick. And they're going to get fired if they take a day off? Are you kidding me? 
That's why, while you CEOs are raking in billions of dollars, are you kidding me? Right? That's where that goes, right? That's how that, that narrative would, would proceed. And, you know, Republicans and Democratic Party leadership apparently are not willing to take that stand. And yeah. that's a freaking shame. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because like I said, it's over something so minute. It, it, it's really not like huge issues here that, you know, still need to be hammered out or resolved. And usually that's that's generally how it goes. Like the bigger issues are, are taken care of. It comes down to these little nitty gritty details um, and that, you know, either side doesn't want to budge on. And a lot of times it's because the companies don't want to, they just, they don't want to budge. They just don't want to give anymore. Right. So because it, what they're afraid is it's cutting into their bottom line, you know, and they're not going to go out of business by granting, you know, a few sick days to their workers. That's not going to happen, you know. And you're right. These companies rake in billions of dollars. You know, they can afford to do this if they wanted to. If they wanted to, right? It's about will, 100%. Well, meanwhile, on the other side, so, you know, we'll, we'll see where, where this ends up. Um, I think there's going to be consequences. And the irony of this uh, for me, uh, if you want to use irony as a word, is that the Democrats are so worried about their public perception, um, <laughs> and which is one of, why they, they don't want to take these risks. Um, they have just facilitated um, a bunch of folks, right, 100 whatever 50,000 workers for example um to not support democrats well exactly right. i mean because if you if anybody saw the list of the of the senators that voted um against this right you would have you know like people like bernie sanders but then you also have some maga republicans that are in there too and that's not good because while you know i agree with them that yeah they should feel that these workers should get that, those sick days as well but you're you're basically like the Democrats are again abandoning their working class roots, right? Like their their working class party. They claim to be the party of the working class, and yet their their track record uh, has not been very good whatsoever. And so I I could see why people are getting so disillusioned with Democratic Party. And I I'm, I mean the Democratic Party is like, you know, the, these are these are corporate Democrats, right? Because right. they always at the end of the day will put. You know, that bottom line, those profits over uh, the health, safety and well-being, I think, of, you know, the American people at the end of the day. You know, and that goes yep. with any political party, you know, just not Democrats. I mean, Republicans as well. So. Oh, 100 percent. And I think this this is what I think one of the biggest concerns for me about uh, uh, Hakeem Jeffries as kind of taking over the kind of uh, leadership, uh, Democratic leadership in the House is that, um, you know, and he's basically handpicked by, you know, Nancy Pelosi and that kind of uh, that tradition of House leadership. Now, look, I want to hold out the uh, you know, again, it's historic. You ever have the, the first ever African-American speaker of the House. Um, mm -hmm. that, that's a huge deal. Um, number two, he's is significantly younger than the octogenarian who've been running things for a long time. So <laughs> that's a good thing. That is right? definitely a good thing. <laughs> right. Um, but he de definitely comes out of that kind of centrist corporate kind of wing of the Democratic Party. Now, having said that, uh, you know, he's not a stupid guy. And um, if he's been paying attention to what's going on, he maybe he's got a, a, the sense of what's actually going, you know, the tides are turning. And so there's, you know, possibilities that uh, Jeffries will kind of uh, be a little bit more, uh, you know, lead a little bit more favorably in the progressive directions. Um, but we'll see, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, you know, hold out hope until I see it, you know, uh, for that. But 
Um, you know, my, my worry is that, you know, these kind of moves, uh, especially in this kind of context, when you have union organizing is on the uptick. Right. <laughs> is that, you know, uh, and union organizing um, among constituencies that that the Democratic Party supposedly uh, really wants and needs um, young folks, African-American, Latino, immigrant women, you know, all this kind of stuff. OK. Uh, and now you're going to yeah. alienate them um, with this group. It's not very good. And, you know, you have a, a potential, especially in a railway, which is, you know, is it, it's it's dominated by. Well, I don't know if it's dominated. I don't know the, the figures here, but, you know, you have it's a much more traditional union structure. And so, you know, you basically alienated those folks and, you know, you've got a bunch of kind of kind of white union guys um, might be over enticed by the rhetoric that you get from the populist right. Yeah. Um, so that's you know, I, I, this is none of that is good. So. No, yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I'm hoping that the Biden administration can rectify some of the damage I think that they've done. I don't think they're going to do it, but this is just another reason why, you know, for the next presidential election, I really feel that Biden should just throw in his hat <laughs> and 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 just bow out, basically. Or not throw in his hat. He should, you know, bow out of the race. Um, I just think that again, it just shows how out of touch, you know, some yep. of some of these politicians really are. They're not willing to. Like they're still conducting politics from you know the the eighties and nineties, and we really really need to kill that model. One hundred percent, one hundred percent. Well, you know you have, um, you know, and if you look at some of the kind of the counter examples of what's going on here, if you look what's happening at the University of California right now, um, you know you had was it forty eight thousand? What was it? Let me see what the numbers were exactly. Um, I can't remember the. Why can't I remember the number of this? I'm telling you, my brain is like a sieve these days. But, um, you know, huge, historic, um, I want to say 48,000 for some reason just sticks out in terms of the numbers of um, people that are on strike. Um, it's probably more than that. But it's the largest uh, higher ed um, strike in history. And um, <clears throat> that has been, per, yeah, 48,000 University of California academic employees walked off the job to massive strike. Um, that was... Uh, almost two weeks ago and there's it's been incredible right so you haven't seen this kind of organizing this kind of a willingness to have a militant strike um than you have here now um right now there's been uh, a tentative agreement now is reached between uh with some of its postdoctoral scholars and academic research uh researchers um and that is a step forward into ending the strike that will not end the strike because there are still outstanding um parts of the agreement mm -hmm. uh, for some of the other unions um, so the, no agreement has been struck so far between uh, the university system and their, their student employees, student researchers, which basically means that at least some employees will continue the strike. Now, there's been talks about uh, the strike continuing until the uh, other tentative agreement has been reached with those uh, workers, too, as well. We shall see. Um, but that's I mean, I think we're going to see that um, having an impact uh, what happens in public higher ed across the state, uh, across across the country. Uh, meanwhile, you have Starbucks workers uh, who are negotiating their first contracts right now. Um, you have an uptick in organizing and kind of Amazon uh, among Amazon labor union. Oh, yeah. Um, Amazon has been like on fire. Like they they aren't giving up. Um, Chris Smalls, if anybody's familiar with him, he he has become basically a national celebrity face of, you know, the Amazon union workers. Um, he's really been pushing hard and not just, you know, for where he was working was he was originally fired, um, but for, for all, you know, Amazon workers across the country. 
100%. So, you know, we got a lot of good stuff going on, a lot of good stuff going on uh, on the labor front. We'll be digging into that a lot over the next uh, several months for sure. Um, on a, uh, on a whole different kind of note in kind of, uh, corporate turnovers, uh, well, Elon Musk has pretty much, uh, done his duty at Twitter. Wouldn't you say, Amy? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, so I was, <laughs> this is, it's crazy, right? So I knew that Elon Musk was, had, you know, proposals to buy Twitter. It was all over the news for a while. And then he was like backing out of the deal. And then some court case ensued about, you know, forcing him to do, I don't know. It was this whole big thing. And then one day I woke up and I was on Twitter and basically Elon Musk is like, oh, you know, he's the owner now. That was it. And people were freaking out. And then you had, it was crazy. I mean, Twitter is, is generally can be like a bit of a I, I, like a swamp sometimes. Shit show? Yeah. It, <laughs> it can be a bit of a shit show. Um, but then all of a sudden, you have these hard, hard right wingers, like just, oh my God, flooding Twitter with all of their crap saying how, you know, free speech is back and all of this kind of stuff. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And now you have, like, Musk reinstated. Um, uh, the Babylon Bee, you know, which is an all right, you know, news organization, yep. highly, mm-hmm. highly un- unreliable. <laughs> you know, that's but, an understatement. <laughs> yeah, but he's all about this free speech. He's reinstated, you know, Donald Trump. And <laughs> yeah, he's uh, now allowing. Uh, they're no longer banning uh, COVID misinformation. Uh, that's nope. good. No, nope. and he because he he basically is like this is free speech. Like it, it shouldn't matter whether it's right or wrong. It's still under free speech. But then you know he also like guts Twitter, like the company, like he guts it, lays off, fires like all these people. Oh my gosh. Well, that's ultimately who he is, right? I mean, that's you know I think you know if any if if people have listened to the show over the over over the years, like you'll know is that you know I, I I've. Uh, Elon Musk, like what Elon Musk has done with Tesla in particular, right? And what they start, what they started doing with that company. And it's not just Elon Musk, it's the people at Tesla, right? Um, If you want to talk about one of the most significant kind of leaps forward in electric vehicles, right? It's because of Tesla. Yeah. Right. It's because Tesla, like, you know, and again, you got to, you know, you look at this and this is kind of like the, the crazy world that we live in is that we've ceded over our ability to do things to billionaires, to do it at their whim, right? Because in a, in a sane functioning society, we would have made decisions that would have basically invested in that kind of technologies more broadly, right? It wouldn't take like the, the massive accumulation of wealth by an individual to kind of um, carry forth their vision, right? To push the market forward. We could have done it in like five years instead of like 20, yeah. right? <laughs> But but nonetheless, right? I mean, so okay, if that's what it takes to you know to, to kickstart that stuff, and 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 at the same time that that's going on at Tesla, right? You know, designing those cars and do all this stuff, you saw the kind of the, the the labor conditions at Tesla grow increasingly bad, right? Because you know because Elon Musk is a freaking dictator, yeah, right, and he doesn't give a crap about workers. He thinks everybody should be working like you know to teeth and bone, which is exactly what he did to Tesla. You know, you want to come back here, you better be prepared to kind of make a life commitment. You know, like you will work here and nothing else. And people are like, screw that. <laughs> You're like, they're like, dude, we worked at Twitter before. Twitter was a fun place to work. And you want to come in here and make it a hellscape? No, well, and I don't sorry. even I don't even think he because I so I was I was seeing reports like before he started firing people. 
that he was he had sent out some kind of memo and he was like demanding to see people's algorithms their codes that they were doing like all of this stuff in a very unusual manner and it just it makes me really wonder like what does he really know period about any of this he doesn't this. know anything and and it anything. basically comes to that so you know i started digging a little bit more into elon musk and you know, things I weren't really aware of about him before. Like, he has been hailed by the media and, like, different magazines and Forbes and, like, all of this stuff as a great innovator. He comes in, he, like, you know, he's got these amazing ideas to help the planet and this and that. And some of his ideas are pretty cool, you know, I must admit. But, like, at the same point, I had no idea that this man, you know, he's an elitist for number one. You know, like, he's never really had to work for anything in his life. You know, it's all been pretty much given to him. And then the fact that his father is an apartheid era owning em like a, a, an emerald mine in South yep. Africa. I was just like the mentality that this man is bringing to these companies. It makes sense now, right? Like you can see that. You can see that. Yeah, and he's also inherited uh, his father's belief that uh, he needs to spread his genetic code to as many things as possible by having oh. as many kids by as many different women as possible. Oh, his whole yep. – so that whole reproduction thing gets me because you see this from from – uh, from the from the far right, like you see this, exactly. is that you know our number one goals basically are to procreate. And for somebody who doesn't have to worry about money, I'm sure that you know you can have as many children as you want. And you don't have to worry about it because you have you can pay for it all. But having kids is expensive. Everybody knows that, right? And yep. we yep. all can't have eight children. Nor does every woman want to you know breed that much anyway. Um, <laughs> well, that's why, you know, that's, that's why the biggest thing that gets me with him is just the complete mm -hmm. ridiculousness of, of himself, right? Is that he's like, yes, I have all these grand ideas, but like, basically you should all just be doing nothing but buying Teslas and reproducing and saying whatever you want. Like, it's ridiculous. Like his worldview is so narrow. It's so childish. It really is. That's. That's exactly it. It really is like, you know, you are uh, like arrested at 13 years old, like a 13 year old, like rich kid, right? With all your hormones popping and all your kind of like comic book ideas. And then you're stuck there. Yeah. Right. And now you've got billions of dollars where you can just kind of like make, like reshape the world in your image. Right. Which is really sick. Um, yes, Emily says quiverful. Yes, that's a, that movement on the right um, called quiverful, oh, which okay. is, you know, the idea that, you know, every every family or every woman in particular should have a quiverful of kids. You know, <laughs> that's where it comes. It's it's crazy. It's nuts. Um, I thought it was a joke when I first when I first heard about that. And then I um, saw this kind of like mini documentary on this quiverful movement and then like interviews with kind of say women and men um, that are, you know, believe that, you know, we just need to kind of uh, produce for the white race and that's what we got to do. That's, that's it's like really sick. taking Republican motherhood to the next step. Yeah. Totally. 100%. 100%. Um, you know, and, and Musk, you know, he thinks about himself, I think is a little bit a different way because like, you know, he doesn't want, he doesn't want to be restricted by like, you know, having kids within marriage, you know, that would be like, you know, that would really be controlling of women. So he likes to have multiple kids by multiple women, um, some above board and some not, you know? So he's just he's just generous with his uh, genetic code. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Insane. Yeah, I guess. Right. <clears throat> exactly. So we saw that, you know, again, you um, people probably saw this. You had the little bump up on the, uh, you know, the kind of little right wing kind of like hit list. They wanted... Uh, to try to appeal to Elon Musk to have a bunch of accounts banned uh, because free speech. Um, 
And of course, Raging Chicken uh, made it on that list. I was very proud of that. So, <laughs> yeah, that one had popped out. The, the Bucks County Beacon was on there too. Yep. yep. Um, Bucks as well County as, Beacon made it. Yeah, and Will Bunch, Will Bunch's column as well. Yep. <clears throat> Will so. Bunch made it. Uh, Stephen Caruso from the. Uh, um, uh, who we've had we've had on the show before. He's a reporter for the uh, oh, why can't I think of the name? Um, Spotlight PA, I think is he, where he's at now, or yeah. did he kind of move? I think he's like that. But yeah, so you have um, you know, it's like yeah, anybody who you know skews even partially towards being sympathetic towards someone left of Nazi uh, was kind of like on that list. But um, you know, this is what these people do. They make lists, right, and then they circulate them. And um, uh, it's crazy. And they, no, no, Emily, we're actually not banned. We were just put on the list. Uh, we put on the, we were put on a list by these kind of right wing folks that were trying to get people banned. Um, it, it, look, this is a familiar. There's a um, I'm Gwen. I'm forgetting her. I'm forgetting her last name now. But she does a lot of anti-fascist work, and uh, she was on kind of uh, you know saying, hey, look, this is what these people do. They make lists, right? They make lists and they circulate them. Um, oh, and I, they saw put it, I saw yeah, that. I saw that. Yeah, exactly. Gwen Snyder, I think her name is. Um, and you know, so you know, that's not that's not kind of unusual. Um, but you know, with some, you got a billionaire who's sympathetic to that at the top. You could see that happening, right? Um, it's supposed to be a full control. So we'll see. And Emily says, "Yeah, we all need to get on Mastodon." It's like, well, that's why I went over there. Um, and it's been interesting. It is not, you know, for people who are trying to make the move over to Mastodon or some other kind of platforms, um, it's not like a one-to-one Twitter replacement. It really does operate on different modes, right? It's an open source, open access kind of thing. You don't have one company that controls it. You have all these kind of distributed servers um, that are mm-hmm. run in most parts by volunteers or kind of either nonprofit or small businesses. Um, the one that I joined was uh, um, um, labor or union dot place, um, which is, you know, a sp- you know, a space for kind of union. You know, you kind of like you kind of like live or join in a neighborhood. Right. But then, you know, you could communicate with people in other neighborhoods just like you can with a phone. Right. And it's like so. Uh, so there's that. Yes, there's discord, too, says Emily. Yep, there is, too, as well. There um, are so many different platforms right now people could go to. Yeah, it's you know what it's a fascinating you know I, I think uh, this is a little bit beside the point but you know this is um it's it's a fascinating moment um in rethinking what's happening in social media and you know there's there's some uh, for those folks who've like you know worked in kind of indie media and things like this for quite some time um you know you we've gotten used to these kind of platforms where that you help circulate you know uh, your work. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and this is not just, you know, kind of political work, but it's also, you know, artistic work and, and music and all this other kind of stuff. And there's a real benefit in many ways of platforms like Facebook and for Twitter in terms of like, you know, everybody's there. Right. So you have that kind of opportunity of this stuff. But when everybody's there and you're controlled by kind of narcissistic, you know, demagogues, um, th- that that's a that's a whole different problem, especially when you have kind of algorithms starting to kind of you know promote mis and disinformation and all this other kinds of stuff. So this new moment, um, we'll see how how long it lasts. But um, this new moment is actually it changes that up quite a bit, right? Um, for a space like Mastodon, where you have the ethics of the way that it's organized, is really fascinating, right? Um, very 
uh, say, community-based um, and distributed and uh, volunteer-oriented, very much reminds me of some of the, the early um, the early internet, right? Where you know that was how it was organized. But the other side of it is like you know because of it, there's not one set of rules. It's not just one set of kind of how you connect it. It's a little bit more complicated to get kind of up and running. So and and not everybody is there. Right. So there's this, you know, that's what's really going to be interesting about it. So we'll yeah. see. Yeah. I think I'm going to stick with Twitter until it until it sinks. <clears throat> yeah. Sean Kitchen said he's going to go down with the ship. Yeah. So. I mean, I came into the Twitter game a little bit late. Um, it was after, you know, Trump was off of Twitter. <laughs> and that's the main yeah. reason why I had avoided it for so long um, yeah. was because of him. Uh, but I, I really do enjoy it. And I do like the fact that, like, you you have access um, to so many different people, so many different organizations, you know, and I really do think it's a bit of a shame of what Musk is doing. So just, yeah, I'm hoping that we're have, um, there's been some interesting, uh, work being done on, in Mastodon communities to like basically make it, uh, you know, people produce these independent apps or tools or things like this that allows you to kind of post in one place. And so it'll go to both Twitter and to Mastodon and some other platforms. Oh, that's how um, Facebook and Instagram work. Like if you post something on exactly. Instagram, it'll, you, there's like a button you can push and it, um, it, it has an automatic feature that it'll like share to your, to your Facebook account. Right. Because it's all yep. owned by the same people now. Right. Right. And there's, there's this the thing metaverse. that, um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, Corey Doctorow, who who's been on this program before, and then we've been refer, we referred to his week, um, uh, his work quite quite a bit here. He does kind of a technology. He's also got a great sci-fi writer, um, but he does technology advocacy and stuff. He's he's on the board of the Electronic Frontier Foundation and this kind of thing. But he's um, uh, I, I'm just gonna I'm gonna not it's some something about compatibility. I'm forgetting the technical term for it. But there's these uh, this kind of legislation that has an advocacy work around this kind of compatibility function, which is um, which would be a, a really important step, I think, in a direction that it will that would be pro user. Right. And not allow for the same kind of monopolistic tendencies from here. And basically what it says is basically you know, if you think about like um, like a phone, right, like a telephone, is that I can get a whole bunch of different kinds of phones. Right. Um, and I can call people that, you know, have their phone through a different company. Yep. Right. Um, and it's seamless. Right. I don't know. I don't have to kind of do anything special to reach somebody at a number who's like from a different company. I just call the number. Right. Um, because that's built into this. A company cannot basically block right, a phone call or the use of this stuff from there, right? And the same, the same idea as it was is being discussed in terms of these reforms on uh, these tech platforms, basically saying, look, if you want to operate in this kind of social media field, you basically have to kind of basically have this open door, right, that allows one platform to talk to another platform. Yeah. So if I'm on Mastodon and I want to talk to my friend who's on kind of like Instagram, Right. I don't need to just then hop over to Instagram. I just need to kind of call my person on Instagram, so yep. to speak. Right. And that kind of thing, would, which I, you know, so I, I, you know, I'm hoping I'm hopeful that we're going to see that kind of environment, because what that could potentially do is make it possible for smaller, say, social media kind of conglomerations, right, configurations, platforms to exist and not be kind of marginalized or set aside from because they're, they're not big enough. Because let's face it, the only reason that people go to the social media platform is because that's where people are, mm -hmm. right? Who wants to go to a new a new social media platform and not be have anybody to talk to, right? 
or even just trying to navigate it. Because, like, I'll, right. I'll be honest, like, when I first started Twitter, like, it, it was confusing to me. I had never really been on it before, and I wasn't sure what to do because I was so used to um, – and I'm a bit of a dinosaur with this, but I'm so used to – I was used to, like, the MySpace platform for a while yep. and then, you know, Facebook for so long, which, you know, Facebook's there, so. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. <laughs> no, no, exactly. Exactly. Well, so there you have it. So um, one of the things I want to uh, definitely want to talk about. Um, so why don't we take just a real quick break? And then when you come back, uh, I want to talk about uh, you flagged this this week about the Magnolia Mothers. I uh, had a big win um, in a fracking case right here in Pennsylvania. Yeah. And we'll talk about some stuff happening locally in some of the school districts in higher ed. So um, there you go. So this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to get into some kind of local PA fun. We'll be back right after this quick break. All right, cool. Do you want to start writing with the Magnolia Mothers? Oh, yeah, I'm actually, yeah, we can start with them. I have the article pulled up, and then I'm going to actually pull up some of the research I had did on them uh, the other year. Cool. Cool, find cool, cool. it i have like it's not this it? did you see that the uh museum workers too they were on strike down in philadelphia yeah 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 they, they finally got their settlement they, that was a yeah. that was an awesome strike they had scabby the rat out there too mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> i saw the big blow up rat it was great it was awesome uh where is it <coughs> <sighs> I have so many files. I hear you that. <clears throat> All right. You want to nope. go back into it? You still want you want to you want to look? Uh, yeah, I'm just trying to figure out where the heck this thing is real quick. Uh, you can you can go ahead. I'm going right. to find it. All right. Sounds good. <clears throat> All right. Here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, everybody, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome back. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken, here once again with Amy Connect. Uh, I want to remind you that uh, you want to help support this show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress, become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. You can also help on this show by simply sharing it on your social media, right? Um, let the Get out, the, get the word around. Um, if you're watching this on YouTube, listen to this on YouTube, make sure that you kind of uh, hit the like button for this particular stream. Uh, subscribe to it. Hit that notification bell so you know every time we go live. Uh, and if you're listening to this as a podcast, uh, make sure you leave us that five-star review. Um, words of support. Let other people know why you like the show. That helps other people find the show. Uh, we appreciate it. Um, and frankly, our uh, social media uh, you know, folks who have been taking, been such a huge part in sharing the show, getting the word out, um, connecting us up with other people have been just absolutely fantastic. So thank you all. Uh, yeah, so we're going to be uh, talking about some stuff, uh, uh, kind of some more local stuff, uh, some other kind of things here. But before we get to the local stuff in particular, um, Amy, uh, you were on the show uh, kind of, I think, over the summer when we were talking about the Magnolia Mothers and their work. Um, and they got the big shout out in the New York Times this week. They did. They did. And it was um, so it was an article. 
well, first, I, uh, it was an article in the New York Times in their opinion. Let me pull, pull it up right now. Here it is. Um, so it was a part of their Times Opinions 2002 Giving Guide. Um, and it was uh, by uh, the New York Times opinion writer Jessica Gross. I believe I'm saying her last name right. Um, and she's talking about springboard to opportunities. Now, this is a, a, a um, nonprofit organization, uh, and it's Jackson-based. So it's, it's in Mississippi. Um, and basically what it does is it provides like practical support for low-income Mississippians, right? And one of the programs uh, underneath Springboard to Opportunities that they run is the Magnolia's Mother or the Magnolia Mother's Trust. Now I started doing research on this a few years ago um, when I was doing a, I was doing a paper for one of my college classes. Uh, and my big focus was on basically like guaranteed and universal incomes. Um, and the Magnolia's Mother's Trust is one of those, guaranteed income programs, right? So they started out with 20 mothers, um, I believe it was in 2008, was it 2018, 19, 20? It was 2018, I, I, I do believe that it had started. Yep, 2018. It yep. was, yeah. Um, and basically it was, um, they're, they're, now there's a difference between universal and guaranteed income programs. Universal, there's no string, like there's no universal based or guaranteed, uni oh my gosh, <laughs> Uni UBI, right? So it's universal. UBI, that's why we say income. UBI. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there's nothing. Like, it doesn't matter what color you are, what sex you are, what, you know, uh, your economic status, right? Like, it doesn't matter. Um, guaranteed income usually has a little bit more, like, has parameters. And the Magnolia Mother's Trust was designed to focus on some of Jackson, Mississippi's most vulnerable residents, right? So it was single black mothers um, they had you know with children basically and living in subsidized housing um, and then you have there was 20 of them uh, that were in the program and they received a thousand dollars for a year and it was a huge huge success right so the program branched out into the next year they were running over covid i mean they literally were able to keep you know, families afloat during the pandemic, right? Because the the thing that they needed is these these women, they didn't need so much as like all of these government agencies involved in their lives telling them, oh, well, you need to work for this or you have to, you know, you have to come in and take drug tests to be able to get this type of benefit. You know, there are so many rules for living in the deep south on any type of welfare assistance down there. I mean, it is dehumanizing to, to absurdness. You know, and the, a lot of the people that that were in this program, you know, they had an annual income of like under like eleven thousand dollars or under. I mean, I can't imagine living off of eleven thousand yeah. dollars. It's 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 unseen. Um, so I I was you know following this organization for a few years now, um, and just kind of keeping up with their pro with their progress. And then I saw that they uh, on Twitter. Um, the CEO of, of Springboard to Opportunities, Dr. Naisha Nyandora, she is amazing. I recommend you follow her. Everybody should follow her. Um, but she she shouted, uh, did a shout out, you know, that they that they had a piece done about them in the New York Times. So I'm really glad to see that they made some national attention. It really, really, really is an amazing, amazing company, amazing organization. Yeah, and they have, you know, I mean, as you've kind of highlighted before, too, as well, is like, you know, these kind of programs, while, you know, say, even when they're, say, targeted or regional or specific, are having a real impact. And it's the kind of stuff that's actually, I think, modeling um, the way that we can kind of really rethink and restructure um, how we just basically treat people, right? And what we consider to be 
um, the floor, right, for being part of a society. Yeah, <laughs> you know? it is. And and a lot of time, the biggest thing, the reason that they do this, so it's no strings attached. So these women were getting $1,000 and there was nothing, they weren't being told what to do with it. It was just, and it was cash because that's what people needed. And it was right. a, a major success. You know, basically, you know, putting to rest all of those horrible, horrible stereotypes that we have. You know, I'm, I'm not going to name drop here, but Ronald Reagan comes to mind. Yep. You know, with his whole, like, welfare queen and all of that nastiness that, that he used to spout out. Um, you know, but it puts to rest of that because these women aren't going out and spending their monies on, oh, my gosh, drugs and all of these terrible things. No, they're taking care of their families. They're paying off debt, right? They're going back to school. They're able to put money aside, you know, for emergencies. It's things that we would think that, you know, everybody does, right? Because that's what they do. Right. And, right. and it really it really does, like I said – it just really does put to wayside some of those horrible, you know, racial stereotyping, you know, that, that we get when we hear about people who are on assistance, especially, especially uh, down south. And it is worth noting here that Mississippi is like one of the worst, absolute worst states to live in. You know, they have the high, I do believe they have like some of the worst health care in the country, like yep. number 50 or number 49. Their infrastructure is complete shit. You know, their infant mortality rate is through the roof. Through the roof. We live in one of the richest countries in the world. Like, no state should have an um, infant mortality rate, period. Right? They have, like, no health care. You know, it, it's ridiculous. And then I don't know if anybody remembers the water crisis that just happened. You know, that was brought up in the New York Times article. You know, so Springboard to Opportunities, um, you know, was giving assistance to families in Jackson because, you know, they're, they're, they have no water. Or their water's nasty, right? <laughs> like, it's just... Exactly. So it's a really exactly. good organization. They do, you know, just all different types of, of outreach programs. It's not just reg regulated to one particular thing. Um, you know, it says here in the article that there were 700 families affected by that water crisis, you know, and they were, they were giving out, you know, direct cash, direct cash to those people because that's what they needed. Yep. You know, not, yeah, not food vouchers, not any of this stuff, just direct cash. Not cultural counseling <laughs> no, not right. cultural counseling, because you can think about it, and this is what these people on the right, you know, and even some centrist Democrats, you know, they, they need to remember is that we live in a capitalistic society. Cash is king at the bottom line. So why wouldn't people just need that cash? Right. It's not and that I think complicated. They, no, exactly. You know, I remember <laughs> uh, I, I wish I could remember uh, who this was who was saying this, but I remember. Uh, listening to some podcasts, there was some um, uh, interview with somebody who was in the kind of, you know, universal basic income, UBI kind of space. And he was, uh, you know, talk, talking about some kind of experiments that were happening, um, you know, different places in the world and stuff. And one of them was mm -hmm. in Kenya and one of them was, you know, all this kind of stuff. And one of the things that, you know, they said is like, you know, that say Republicans in particular, but also Democrats have spent like, you know, billions and billions of dollars over the past, like, many decades, right, um, doing all this work on kind of monitoring what they believe are the kind of, like, causes of poverty, right, um, <laughs> you know, by providing, you know, like I say, cultural counseling or parental tips or whatever it might be, and then paying for this huge bu bureaucracy, Right. That is about getting into people's lives to kind of like controlling their behaviors and all this other kinds of stuff. And what this guy said was, you know, like ultimately there's a simpler solution, because, you know, if you really ask the question about why are people poor, 
the 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 more simple answer is because they don't have money. <laughs> right? You know, yeah. so yeah. if you want to know what the solution is, it's to give them money. <laughs> right? And like if that if the goal is to solve poverty, right? And not kind of control people's bodies and minds and lives and choices, then you solve the problem in a direct route. And guess what you also do? You get rid of an entire bureaucracy that is designed to get into people's lives. Those things which people hate about government programs, right? Yeah. So here you go. You say, no, guess what? You're a human being. You're alive in the society. We're going to kind of make sure that you have this floor, right? So that, you know, you can make those choices that you make. And we're out of your business. Yeah. And they yeah. work. Yeah. Yeah, they do work. I mean, and and the whole the whole issue with you know, the welfare state, right? And and this big bureaucracy that runs all of this is you know, first of all, it differs between state to state, right? Like, so there isn't really a whole lot of good regulation on how these you know, government run programs are are, are run basically. <coughs> right, um, right. And then you know, it's all based on deservedness. And that's yep. what it comes down to, you know, and this goes back generations, right? Like if you go back to the 60s, I mean, there were marches, you know, marches, you know, for, for welfare rights. Because if you were on welfare, you know, if you were a black woman on welfare, you know, back in the 60s, back in the 70s, you know, you you couldn't you couldn't get married because if you got married, you were like off, right? Like you, you had these crazy, crazy stipulations that you had to follow. Right. Ridiculous. It was, it was honest to God. It was not about helping people. It was literally about controlling yep. the, these people's lives down to the point where like it became a point where like they couldn't afford to do anything. Right. Because they yep. couldn't afford to get another job because then they made too much money and then they were kicked off, but it wasn't enough. Like it was, it's just, it's absurd. I get really irritated, like thinking and even just like about any of this kind of stuff, because it, it, you look more into it and it's not about helping people. And these a lot of these totally. programs don't work. Right. Like the Republicans will say, oh, these, you know, they don't work. They hemorrhage money. Well, they do because they're not being done right. Like they're not set up right. They're not structurally sound and they're not designed to get people out of poverty. Right. And it's ironically what the Republicans want you to do. Right. What they want to do ultimately with these programs, if it will either you get rid of them. Right. But if they don't, if if it's not get rid of them, it's to like make the monitoring function that much more intrusive. Right. So and so that which means you need more in a bureaucracy, which is designed to get down into people's lives. Now, look, you know, this is why I'm always been in favor of universal programs. Right. Right across the board is like, you mm -hmm. know, it's like because I don't believe that. OK, you just give people money and then you get rid of all the you know, this is like, you know, what libertarians want to do. OK, well, we'll, just, we'll pay a basic income, but then we'll eliminate Social Security. We'll eliminate all this other stuff. No, 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 no. You still need this stuff. Right. But the thing is, the differences between, say, instead of having Medicaid and, Medi and, and, and Medicare and then all these other kind of like subsidized and things. No, you have what do you call it? Oh, Medicare for all. Right. So <laughs> yeah. everybody gets Medicare. Everybody gets health care. Right. And so therefore you eliminate all this kind of like means testing nonsense. Right. And then you basically say, OK, now you, then you take that off the table. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what, you know, I go, I, most of every other kind of like country that can afford it in the world, that's what they do for exactly the same reason. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it doesn't are. solve like all poverty issues either. Right. Like just right. because you live and then and, and that's what, you know, and that's it, it's it's really I say it's not a complicated issue, but I mean, it is when you're talking about like a national like when you're doing it like on a national on a national 
level, right? You know, but like you, you just, if you see the way it is now, it doesn't work. And if we were to slowly chip away at some of these problems, and there have been studies, there have been studies going back to the 50s, back to the 30s about why people are poor, and they always, always come back with the same thing, right? It's yep. always the same thing. Because being poor in this country is a policy choice, you know, not to quote Nina Turner there or anything, but it is. It is. Poverty is policy. Yep, 100%. 100%. Well, on the other, uh, kind of another thing happening kind of more in PA that you flagged this week is that we had a big win uh, when it comes to communities basically standing up and fighting back, basically saying, no, we're going to make a different kind of policy choice, right? We don't want uh, kind of to live in a polluted and kind of messed up kind of environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, hold on. I am pulling that back up. I lost my yeah. article. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, uh, what if time anybody... did you say it was endemic? It was Dimmick. Dimmick. Dimmick, PA. Yeah. So you remember, yeah. like, the uh, for folks who've watched Gasland, right? Uh, that awesome show, awesome, awesome documentary by Josh Fox, right? Where that, that, where Dimmick, PA uh, was kind of front and center as, you know, the, uh, uh, the fracked community whose water you could set on fire, right? You know, the water coming in their houses, you had so much methane in it and it was polluted with so many kind of uh, carcinogens and all this other kinds of stuff. Um, they became, in a sense, like, uh, you know, a poster child, not does, not wanting it, um, you know, not in a glorious way, but in a horrible mm -hmm. way um, for uh, the, the downfalls of fracking and the fight against it. And uh, we've just had a huge uh, kind of win this week exactly on that. Yeah. Yeah. So WHYY, like NPR covered this, PBS, like all these different local um, news outlets covered this. Uh, the Bucks County Beacon uh, did as well. So basically, so after 15 years of having this polluted water, um, Cabot Oil and Gas pleaded no contest to 15 criminal charges, including nine felonies. Um, and this is the first time that Cabot is taking responsibility for basically destroying the drinking water there in Dimmick. Um, it was, uh, let's see, they agreed to pay $16.29 million to Pennsylvania American Water um, to build a public water system. Uh, and then here's the kicker on this too. So the company is going, well, it says that there's a pledge. So we'll see if they hold out for this. Mm -hmm. But the pledge was, is that the company is going to cover the water bills for the affected residents of Dimmick for 75 years. 75 years. So I, I really hope that they're going to be held to that because it does say it was a pledge. So I don't believe that was court ordered. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like, so I haven't seen the gas land. I mean, Kevin had just told me about this today. I'm totally going to take a look into it, you know, but basically, you know, having a win here, I mean, people are familiar with the Flint water crisis, the crisis that we had just talked about, you know, the water crisis down in Jackson, Mississippi. And it seems like so often that it just, this stuff gets news coverage, you know, um, it gets a lot of press and stuff like that, and then it fades out, and then you don't hear anything about it after that, right? Like, I'm right. pretty sure Flint, Michigan still doesn't have clean water, you know? Yep. So to hear of a win, you know, for the people of any particular, of any of these crises is amazing. But the thing, the fact that it took 15 years, I mean, people were living in this town for 15 years with water that could, you know, you could light it on fire. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. And I think, That's you insane. know- insane. That is It's insane. insane. It's it's and kind of like having to kind of like deal with kind of like carcinogens in the water, like I mean some yeah. of the worst. Stuff. And the thing that's interesting about this case, uh, uh, not to, I should interesting is like like a disinterested word, but um, it, it, what's what's amazing about this is that the Cabot pled like to criminal cases, uh, criminal charges. So it wasn't just like they were oh like you know we didn't know oh and oh my god we need to make it right. It means they knew. 
right? Yeah. They knew this stuff was going on and they took an active part in kind of doing it and now are being forced here. Now, I, you know, for my money, the amount of damage this uh, that that company has caused, um, not just in Dimmick, but across Pennsylvania and across the country, um, $16 million is like a drop in the bucket for what these people are taking in. Yeah. Um, so, you know, going forward, especially as, you know, we need to make a, you know, a, a switch to kind of non-fossil fuels um, that I'm hoping that this settlement in Dimmick is actually going to be like the shot across the bow and saying, OK, uh, no more. Uh, you know, get out of jail free cards. Um, we're going to start really start putting the clamps on. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, like, uh, so uh, uh, the governor elect Shapiro, Josh Shapiro, um, he was, you know, the attorney general of Pennsylvania. And he, he had, uh, it says here in a WHYY, a PBS article, it says here that he had charged them, uh, the Cabot Oil and Gas Company in June in 2020, um, after recommendations from a grand jury that found the company had failed to acknowledge and correct conduct that polluted Pennsylvania. So not just Dimmick water, like Pennsylvania water yep. through stray grass my, uh, migration. You know, and then they have an interview here with with a resident who basically was like um, – this gentleman, it was Ray Kemble of Dimmick, who says he continues to haul water to his house in large containers. He said it's a vindication for the people who suffered from lack of water and Cabot's denials of responsibility. He said they're not going to be able to sit there and do what they did here for 14 years. He said all they did was deny and saying that the residents of Dimmick were liars. You know, that the water wasn't polluted. He says they're finally yeah. going to be held accountable. And that accountability right there, you know, I, I do think that the monetary amount should probably be more than that. But, like, just having that accountability, you know, in a court can, in a court case and a win like this, I'm hoping that this kind of sparks off, you know, some revised interest um, in, in some of these other, other places as well, especially in, you know, places like Flint, Michigan. 100%. And, you know, this is, I want to put in a plug in too for the great folks out there in the Public Herald um, uh, based out of, uh, not just out of Pittsburgh, but the folks out of, you know, out of Pittsburgh in particular. We've had, you know, them on the show here, uh, Josh Brabanek, um, and uh, they do great work, uh, especially on kind of pollution and fracking and fossil fuel stuff out there. So uh, do check out the folks at Public Herald too as well. Who, they just do amazing work on this. So great stuff. So let's talk teachers contracts and unions a little bit here um so now you flagged this i think probably the last time you were on the show um and you've been kind of following goes up here obviously you talked about you know being up in palisade school district and you've got um teachers up there that are still uh, still going to work still yep. teaching kids yep. um but are still without a contract so where are things at well, pretty much things are where they were like in July. Um, so if anybody's familiar with Upper Bucks County um, or the Palisade School District, if you're traveling up along Route 611, 412, anything like that, you might notice that there are these large signs up um, and, and basically stating that Palisade's teachers have been working without a contract since July. Um, in addition to that, you know, they also, before the contract had expired, you know, they had agreed to extend the contract a year before. Um, you know, for to help with budgetary issues with the district. It's not a large district, right? Like we don't rake in millions and millions and millions of dollars like Central Bucks or some of our, our neighboring districts. Um, you know, so the money, it, it's, it's not inexhaustible, but at the same point, you know, there's no reason that, you know, we're starting to hemorrhage teachers up here. And this used to be a good district. Now, I still feel that it is a pretty decent school district for the most part. We are not plagued with a lot of the same issues that you're seeing in our, our neighboring districts like Quakertown, Penridge, you know, um, 
Council Rock, Central Box, especially, uh, which we do border. You know, but the sheer fact of like that there's no budging, you know, I did a I did an op ed for the Bucks County Beacon of this um, the other month, you know, talking about it, I managed to get a statement, you know, from the co president of the Palisades Education Association, you know, and basically, you know, they don't want it, to it's all comes down to pay, right? So Palisades School District is one of the lowest paid districts in Bucks County. You know, and I get it. It's small, but there's no reason why you can't be providing adequate funding, you know, for the teacher's pay, right? Like, I don't really want to get into too many details, but I do pretty much, I do frequent school board meetings. The regular school board meetings are held like twice a month. Um, the next one is on Monday, at 7, I believe at 7 p.m. Uh, if anybody is wants to show up and speak about it, um, I am going to be there and probably going to be bringing up as well that these teachers still don't have a contract. I know of several in the district that are planning on leaving. You know, we're going to be leaving really good. We're going to be losing our uh, our staff and we're not going to be a blue ribbon district anymore. You know, people come to this district. They move up here because they like the area, because they like the school district. I, for one, decided to move up to this area um, because of the school district, right? It came highly rated. You know, I'm not really so sure about that now, and I don't really know what to do. Like, it's everybody's hush-hush, right? Like, I can't really get – there's no commentary coming from board members, probably because they're not allowed to speak on the matters, which I totally understand. You know, but at every board meeting, you're just getting, well, things aren't moving along. No news is good news. You know, it's just – there's nothing. Like, so for how long are our teachers going to put up with this? You know, and if they're right. not going to strike because they can't afford to – Right, they're just going to leave, and then where are we going to be? I, I yeah, did, and this is uh, right, and this is happening against a backdrop of you know, and every major newspaper in the state um, is talking about the teachers' crisis and not being able to kind of recruit enough teachers. And this is not just uh, happening just in Pennsylvania, but it's happening in states across the country. Um, and so, you, you, again, you're just add, it's like adding more fuel to that crisis, right? Um, by if you're not going to actually do the things that are necessary to keep to keep good teachers yeah and that's and that's what it is you know and like i said i understand that we're a small district i understand that you know you you do have a finite amount of funds at your disposal you know but at the same point like there were some purchases this year that the district made that like i i was a little shocked about like does do we really need a new digital sign in front of the high school i know part of it was funded by a separate organization which is fabulous you know so it wasn't the whole cost didn't fall upon the district. That's great. But at the same point, like what's more important, that digital sign out front or retaining our teachers, you know, right. and I, and I don't know how the negotiations are going. I'm not sitting in on those meetings. I'm not invited, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> um, you know, but I can't imagine that they won't be budging at all on some of the pay. I mean, to be one of the lowest paid districts, obviously, obviously in the current climate that we are living, you would think that administration would would want to take that into consideration, right? Like, we're going through really unprecedented times. Our teachers, you know, were made to work through a pandemic. And, and this is also important to note, right, is that Palisades teachers, we were not, we were probably the first district that went back to face-to-face -face classes when all the other districts around here, you know, were not. And a lot of our teachers, you know, they don't have children that go to our district, right? So because they might not live in the district. So they had to contend with their own children being at home, doing online learning while they have to be face-to-face -face in the classroom. 
you know, so there's a lot of these other factors that were like put onto our teachers. And again, we don't have a huge staff like Central Bucks. So we, the teachers as well have limited resources. Right. You know, it's not just the, you know, it's not just administration and, you know, the monetary funds. It really has to do with, with other things as well. I just, I am really getting disappointed. I can't believe that they are still, still going this long without any type of resolution. Well, you know something, you, you know, you brought up a couple times about how, you know, there's not like unlimited funds in the district and everything like that. Yeah. Totally understandable. But you know what? Um, I, what I have found in my experience like working in, you know, I mean, I grew up with a family of educators, right? Uh, I've been around teachers for quite some time. I'm still a teacher, right? You know, in higher ed and stuff like this. But what I can tell you is that, you know, the people who understand that quite often are very much the teachers themselves. Yeah. Right? I mean, teachers are very conscious of like what what kind of funds are available in the schools. That's why there are so many teachers who end up kind of bringing their own materials or are paying out of pocket expenses to kind of make sure their kids have adequate supplies. Right. I mean, you know, teachers don't kind of go into education to make to become millionaires. Right. They come in there because they love teaching, but yeah. they also have to live. Right. And, you know, I, I have yet to meet a teacher who just kind of says, like, I don't care how much money the school district has. I just want lots of money. I have never heard that out of a teacher's mouth. The only reason, and matter of fact, teachers have more often than not are willing to take pay cuts, right? Yeah. Um, are, are willing to kind of have freeze on benefits and things like this because they're worried about, you know, the integrity or the funding of the school as a whole. So when you have the point where teachers are kind of, you're finding a sticking point like this, like we're not talking about you know, like people who are out there to make a million dollars. Those are people like Elon Musk, right? Those are those people. It's not the teachers in the school districts. So it's like, you know, you have very often, you know, the teachers are aligned with the parents and the taxpayers and all this kind of stuff for the most part, right? It's, um, it's when you have these school boards who think that, you know, the teachers are the enemy as opposed to kind of like, how do we kind of make sure that we're all kind of going to be in this together? We're going to keep the talent that we need. Yeah, you know, and, and I actually, I mean, and for the most part, like, I I have approved pretty much of, of our school board, right? Like, I think our school board does a pretty good job for the most, you know, they do. I think they're reasonable. I think the people, for the most part, that have been elected to the board, you know, are, are easy to talk to. Um, I think that they really do want to make, you know, the best decisions, you know, for our teachers and for our students as well. But, like, I like I said, the last school board meeting I went to, you know, uh, there's a committee now um, that reports on the negotiations and, and the committee uh, director or the committee chair or whoever is in it. It's one of the board members. Um, and he just he doesn't have anything to say. It's just like the last time at the last board meeting, he said, well, no news is good news, I guess. Like what kind of, of relation? Like, what is that? That's that's not accepting. Like, I just don't feel that that's acceptable. You know, I am concerned. Like, how is the integrity of my child's education going to be faring after this? And like I yep. said, I don't really see our teachers going on a strike up here. I just I just don't see it happening. You know, they're just going to leave. They're going to go someplace else that's willing to pay more, that wants these really good teachers. So yep. I, I it, it is very concerning. It is very concerning. And to me, it's even it's even more concerning is the lack of of public support. Like we don't, I, I haven't seen a whole lot of people at board meetings protesting one or two here or there. Um, the teachers have showed up themselves, you know, the one meeting they were there, they were all dressed in black and solidarity. They had elected, you know, a representative to speak on their behalf, you know, as a collective whole. And she, you know, was really powerful words, but 
that that's it. I mean, the teachers can be there and advocate for themselves, but where is the rest of that public support? Yep. Yep. One hundred percent. And, I, you know, one of the things that I, you know, I've I've been saying and um, through the school board wars that have been taking place in this kind of area. And like you said, like, you know, you don't have uh, up in Palisades, you don't have a school board, which is kind of as off their rockers like we do here in Penridge uh, or in kind of in Central Bucks. Um, oh, my God, no. <laughs> and I'm yeah. just going to put that out there right now. You know, yep. we, we don't. And, and I am so very grateful for that because. I couldn't, I, I can't, I can't even, uh, I can't even imagine what you, like you are dealing with in Penridge, you know, and people that I know that live in Central Bucks. Like, I don't even want to go there with that. That's just yep. awful. And, and like I said, grateful for a school board like that. But at the same point, I, I do wish that they were perhaps be maybe a little bit more transparent about what is going on, you know, yep. maybe put out a press release or something like it's always right. everything is so hush hush up here all behind these closed doors it, it's just all this like talking on the side you know it's ridiculous yeah well you know and i do think that you know this is this is one thing that i've you know again i i've we've i've had these kind of debates and discussions with our with my own union um and there's been you know we've had these these you know these arguments about um uh, about the like how much we talk about negotiations and all this other kinds of stuff. And there's this one model where, you know, everything is kind of like nobody says anything. And it's all behind closed doors. Um, and I understand that for the most part when negotiations begin. But when there's when there's a breakdown, right, or when there's real things, then, you know, look, I mean, people got to start speaking out. I mean, this is, a, you know, this is where, I you know, um, you know, PSEA, um, really, I think, you know, needs to think about how it's doing its organizing, right? And well, teachers moving forward. Now, like, for example, in Penridge, one of the things that's been, like, fascinating to see now is that there there's there were two big moves by the school district um, over the, you know, the, the over, you know past several months. One was be the kind of their move to eliminate some health classes, like gym classes and things like this. And now they want to kind of, uh, kind of cut um, um, social studies classes. Right. Um, and for the first time, such a bad decision. It, well, totally for a whole bunch of reasons. But for the first time, what's been what's been happening is that teachers are now showing up en masse to school board meetings and speaking publicly about this. There was uh, just uh, I don't know if I'm going to have I don't, I don't know if I have this. I did have this handy. It was right by me the other day. Let me see if I still got this. Uh, I don't have it right next to me right now. Shoot. Um, but I, I wanted to give you the kind of the number of them, but I don't have it right here. But there was like, tw I, th I want to say like 20 some odd um, um, Penridge uh, social studies teachers signed on to an open letter that was published in the, say, the Courier Times, right? Or their intelligence or one or the other. So writing a public editorial and kind of showing up at these school board meetings, kind of in defending um, the social studies curriculum. That's the kind of thing that I really, really like to see. And I think we could kind of need to see more, especially because like, look, when you have a lots of pressure that is coming from a particular like kind of like, you know, more conservative kind of bent stuff or really kind of, you know, mainstream media too as well. But everything is fo focused on financial districts and greedy teachers, right? How it's all about the kind of the bottom line dollar. When half the time what you find out is that, yes, there's always there's there's always dollar issues that are there. But sometimes one of the real sticking points are not necessarily the, the, um, the final money. Um, or, or kind of benefits or whatever it might be. So at some point, you got to start having these kind of more public conversations because the community is involved, 
right? Yeah. Um, and the media structure is set up and the kind of the public discourse about kind of finances and taxation and everything like this is all working against any kind of, say, public education, any kind of public service whatsoever. So you have to engage with the community over kind of these issues. And I think that keeping everything quiet and behind closed doors is 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 going to be an increasing increasingly detrimental for um, for teachers. So and I, one of the things I've said, you know, in the wake of those school board wars, um, that the next target is going to be um, um, teachers and teachers unions. Um, that's where that's where things are going. And I think that and I'm not saying that's happening at Palisades like like you. I don't know the backstory here, um, but you know, people, we need to be supporting these teachers in Palisades. Oh, I think so. You know, just like, I think we need to be supportive of the teachers, all, all the teachers in Bucks County. I mean, like Palisades has its issues with different things. You know, every school district does, you know, but like it's, they have some pretty good curriculum too. You know, it's not, it's, it's not, I, I just don't under, like I said, and I don't know, like, I mean, you can go to the fiscal meetings, you can go to finance stuff, you know, and you can, you can, it's all public record. I mean, you can look up and see how much the district is bringing in this and that and what they spend on, you know, it's not, that information is all there, you know, I mean, and I do believe that like teacher salaries are public to some degree, um, they're you all know, public. But, yeah. 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 You know, it did. But like, so all that is there, you know, but like, again, you know, I've watched our district spend money on some of these other things. And I'm not saying that perhaps they didn't need them, you know, and I'm not talking about like roof projects or anything like that. Right. You know, but like housing for like storage and stuff like that. And that really cool digital sign that they got for the front of the high school. I just feel like that those things really should be taking a back burner. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I can't 100%. imagine like for, for right there, for what you had said with Penn Ridge though, with, with them taking away the, the social, like that's going to affect colleges. Is it not like when students are yep. applying for college? Yep. 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 I want to get somebody to come on and talk uh, to, to uh, I, I, I reached out kind of a while back. I'm going to have to do this, do another round of this to see if I get some of these social studies teachers to come on and talk about what's a, um, um, the impact of the curriculum and so on. Cause I, that I would liked be fabulous. It. Yeah. I mean, that would be, um, you know, that's one of the things I've always hoped. I've always hoped to have, you know, not just kind of some spokespeople that are going to come and kind of give me the kind of line that they're getting to anything, but just talk to some teachers about what these kind of impacts are um, and to help kind of, get the voices of the people on the ground, right? You know, um, mm -hmm. um, kind of out there talking about what's happening. So, so one other thing that we want to want to, we're going to flag, and I think that we're going to see some reporting on this coming in the upcoming months, but um, there's some issues brewing down in Southerton school district too, as well. And I've had some people reach out to me from uh, some parents groups of Southern over the past several months, um, just kind of little blips in that building kind of some networks of connection, trying to figure out what's happening there. Um, but there's a, a um, this kind of was sent to me there, but there's a, a, this, this organization, quote unquote, new organization called Southern teachers coalition.org. Um, now Southern, now what they claim to be is they claim to want a, uh, uh, a local only teachers union, right? Um, and they want to vote basically for the decertification of um, the Southern Teachers Education or Southern Education Association, which is again a branch of the PSEA, they want to vote to decertify PSEA and um, bring in a local only union. Now, why does this matter? Well, um, what's always kind of interesting when you go to a website and when they have say, "Hey, contact us," and then when you contact us, there's no information about who they are, 
right? Or kind of uh, what names are associated with it. Um, but it's just kind of like about us or here's this kind of standard contact uh, fill out form. You got to get wonder, you got to ask the question who's behind it. In most cases, when you see moves like this, right, especially the Southern just settled a union contract this past summer. Okay. And in Southern, I want to give you kind of an example, see if I can pull this up real quick. I just had it. What did I do with it? Here we go. So Souderton signed a contract, right, um, that um, July 1st, 2022, which went into effect, and it goes to 2027. And it was approved by the area school board, right, at the meeting. Now, now, just for an example, starting salaries are going to increase by about 12% over the life of the contract, while the top salary will be increasing by about 5.75%. The new contract raised uh, the salary schedule by $750 in the first year, $825 in the second year, and $1,050 in the third year, $1,700 in the fourth year, right? So it tells you what goes on, tells you what the starting salaries are. And, you know, they say there were statements that came out from both that said, hey, we are very pleased to achieve this agreement between our school board and our teachers association. This is the result of collaborative process, which honors the hard work and dedication of our educators and also acknowledging the burdens um, placed on local taxpayers. Now that is happening. So they, that went into effect. And now there's also been, you may have seen this already. There's this uh, video that is circulating on the libs of TikTok um, oh site, which is this kind of ultra right wing stuff oh. about this, um, this Souderton, uh, this quote unquote Souderton woman who has actually gone to a school board meeting and talks about how teachers kind of like forced or coaxed her daughter to be trans. <laughs> then they shaved her head and changed their name without notifying the parents. Now, first the of teacher all, shaved the child's head. <laughs> that's what she says. This, the, this, this quote unquote mom. Right. Uh, and now, now the Penridge area Republican club, this is what they said. And they, oh, and they God. tweeted out tragic Souderton teachers overstepped their mandate. Teachers are hired by parents to educate their children, not to indoctrinate them. Clearly some teachers have a savior complex. Right. So that's coming from the Penridge Area Republican Club. We're seeing these kind of this kind of anti-trans stuff that has been used, uh, used was used in the midterm elections that will be, be going forward. You've got this woman kind of like, you know, this going viral on uh, um, this was kind of just was published out on November 16th. So just a recent um, school board meeting. And now you've got this organization called uh, Souderton Teachers Coalition that is going after the teachers union. Right. So um, my money is on the fact that all of that's connected. <laughs> OK, um, so look, look, just keep your eyes on Southern School District. I know we haven't talked a lot about Southern on this um, on this program. We've been focusing a lot on what's happening in Central Bucks and Penridge and Palisades, um, in part because that was where a lot of activity was happening, let's say the least. Um, but uh, we need to start talking more about what's happening at Southern, too, as well, to see that this is a pattern. Um, and it's going to be setting up the next fight for 2023. Yeah. So um, last thing I want to say um, on the education front, I'm not going to talk a whole lot about this today, um, but I just want to put this on everybody's uh, uh, radar because uh, we're going to be talking a lot about it coming up. So there's going to be some big battles for Pennsylvania public higher ed and public higher ed across the country that is going to be happening. Um, as I've said, that the ABSCUF contract, uh, that is the Association of Pennsylvania State College and University Faculties, um, that is my faculty union, um, Kutztown is one of the members of it. We've seen unprecedented kind of activity there. Like, for example, we had consolidations of six universities into two um, as part of the 14 state school system. Lots of people losing their jobs, curriculum being cut, a whole bunch of kind of negative stuff that's going on um, at the statewide level. And I think it's going to really 
uh, it's setting everything up for an incredibly contentious um, contract negotiation. So those contract negotiations have just begun. Um, we're going to be hearing more about this, and it's going to be playing itself out in the budget talks too as well. Mm. That Having said that, there's also a series of articles. Uh, um, Vox just posted one um, about the uh, the coming demographic crisis uh, when it comes to uh, public higher education. Um, and it highlights uh, uh, Shippensburg University, which is a member of the state system of higher education universities, um, as an example right, um, of what's happening in terms of these crashing numbers of students and all this other kind of stuff. What's interesting to me about this article, and first of all, I should say this uh, article from Vox, thank you, Colleen Clemens, for uh, flagging it for me. Um, I was, I mean, again, yes, it was a really crazy article to read. Um, the article was written by a guy by the name of Kevin Carey, and he writes about education under the issue. He's the vice president of New America, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C. Okay, so why I flagged that is because, okay, there's a think tank that's writing about this kind of stuff. And a think tank is generally an interested party in some, in some regard, right? Um, I don't know a whole lot about these folks. We'll be looking into them. Um, but the basic overall narrative is that there's a coming demographic crisis and that's going to kind of like dramatically um, change what happens to uh, public higher education. The elite universities are going to be fine. Um, it's the state universities or regional universities that are going to be impact hard. And part of the conclusion is that that is going to lead to a further disparity when it comes to access to public higher education and is actually going to lead to a further kind of, um, uh, say, separation um, or kind of self-selection of kind of Democrats and Republicans in different areas of the country. Um, but anyways, so that's one of them. A second article that came out, too, as well this week. It was an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education, um, basically exploring the uh, the different kind of solutions to this coming economic crisis. And they're all there's these public private partnerships. There's this kind of like, quote unquote, innovative. And anytime you start talking about innovation, that my ears go up because usually that's kind of flagship for austerity, downsizing and job loss. Um, but so there, there's this stuff that's going on. And I think this is all happening for a reason right now. Um, the state system of higher education's uh, chancellor's name is um, Daniel Goldstein. Um, he, again, as I've said before on this program, he came out of um, the uh, Gates Foundation's higher education program, which was all about the kind of like, you know, um, like assessment and, you know, innovation as a way of kind of transforming higher education, all these kind of buzzwords, which ultimately leads to, again, downsizing, job loss, cuts of programs. Um which independent studies have shown exactly what that that is what's happening in Pennsylvania. So but the language is bleeding into a bunch of articles in different kinds of spaces, which tells me this is in the air. Right. When it comes to when people are talking about public higher education and there's money behind it. So we're going to see some of that stuff play out kind of in higher ed. One of the things that uh, that is always interesting is that the numbers that are getting used in this, uh, the article in the Chronicle, and I believe in Vox's article too, as well, they talk about a peak enrollment in 2010, um, which is when the enrollment numbers went way up and then they have a dramatic drop off. Right. And so we're seeing, so the numbers that we say, look, look at the amount of students that have left the state system. So you have, look, enrollment at this one university was 8,000 in this in 2010, and now it's down to 5,000. Right. And it reproduces this model of crisis. Right. Um, and what's been called cliff funding. Right. That we, we're going to about to fall off the cliff. So what are we going to do? Here's the problem. 
is that as uh, Jamie Martin, who's the former um, our previous ABSCUF president, ha- went to the Board of Governors and made this case over and over and over again, for the most part to deaf ears, was that it's interesting that they pick 2010 and Daniel Goldstein has chosen 2010 as the number to show the decline. Because if you add on 10 years to that analysis, right, you basically take that point, that data point at 2010, you draw it back 10 years to 2000, right? And you look at enrollment trends there. What you see is not a, a, a model of decline, right? But you see a, a consistent, a pretty steady, consistent, gradual increase over time with a bump at 2010 and then going back to more normal levels, right? That was predictable. People talked about it at the time that there's going to be a demographic bump and it's going to go down. But now that demographic bump is being used to demonstrate that look at what it was and now it's fallen. So therefore, it's a self-justifying narrative to try to cut, right? So that's kind of where we're at. And uh, that's all I really want to kind of say for now to kind of set that up a little bit for future shows, because um, I think that we're going to have to basically be foregrounding this um, both in our kind of contract negotiations and union organizing, um, but um, push back against this um, this particular kind of narrative, because what's ultimately happening is they're kind of getting rid of, uh, you know, access for public higher education um, for massive amounts of students. That is happening at the same time that we see we still see debt loads at an all time high. Um, and so we didn't talk quite about the, uh, the, the the crazy Supreme Court decision. Now they're going to hear the student loan forgiveness program for the Biden administration. So everything is still on hold there. Oh, that's um, that. Yeah, I totally. Oh, my gosh. I totally forgot about that. <laughs> I yeah, didn't forget yeah. about it, but I did. I did. So I, I hope people who are eligible out there like filled out their applications for it because I think it's an amazing thing to be going through. Yep. I, I really is. I mean, I myself, you know, I, I totally put in my application for it. You know, I just got done school. You know, I have acquired a bit of a debt there, you know, so it would be nice to have some of that knocked off because that literally will reduce the amount of years that I will be paying on my student loans, you know, and I'm, I'm going to be adding to that too, you yep. know, um, you know, for higher, you know, getting into higher education. Um, so I really do hope that the Supreme Court, uh, you know, sides with the Biden administration on something like that. I, I think it would be a, a, just a really big blow to a lot of Americans, you know, and just totally. basically telling them that, you know, we don't care about you. Yep, yep exactly. So. It's going to be like, you know, and again, so we'll, we'll see, uh, you know, I hope that that the Democrats go hard on this because I think it's going to be uh, kind of kind of important. Um, setting up for both uh, one support for the program, right, uh, for yeah. the cancellation of ten thousand, ten up to twenty thousand dollars worth of debt, depending on how your debt was incurred. Um, but then uh, to also set it up for if the Republican Supreme Court and Republicans go out kind of against this and this gets shot down, everybody and their grandmothers and their future children should know the reason why. Yeah. Right. And that yeah. should be a mobilization kind of moment, um, a political mobilization moment around that. So we shall see. Yep. Crazy. Well, hey, Amy, anything else uh, for the good of the order that's on your mind? I'm trying to think. <laughs> There's always so much going on. It just really depends on where you're looking. Uh, yeah. I don't really think so. I mean, have you been keeping up with um, any of the series shows? 
well, this is what I was going to say, right? So ah. as I, uh, I have, right? So, um, but I, I have, I have not watched Wednesday yet. Have you watched oh, Wednesday? I, okay. I, well, we actually binged Wednesday um, over Thanksgiving. So <laughs> yeah, if I wasn't, I, I swear to God, I it had the, fabulous. it was really uh, good. I can't wait. I cannot wait to watch it. I had the, I had a, you know, I got the flu and I literally, I tried to watch some program. I couldn't even pay attention because my brain was such a fuzz. So I was like, I'm not watching Wednesday in that context. So I haven't gotten that yet. Um, I did watch the, um, I did watch, um, uh, what's it called? Andor. Have you watched Andor? Oh, yes. Yes. I I do. Okay. So I think I have like an episode. So here's the thing. I am like on the last episode of Andor, right? Mm -hmm. I still haven't finished that last episode, nor have I finished the very last episode of House of Dragon yet. Oh my God. You have to. I I have. I know. You have to. I've gotten through like halfway through the episode. I keep falling asleep, right? And I, it's I'm not bored by it. I'm just tired. Um, yeah. I just I have so it's those two those two series. I really do need to finish like the last two episodes of. Oh, I'm so glad you said that, so I didn't spoil it for you because <laughs> it's know. like so good. Well, it's getting to be that point now where it's like if I don't watch the end of it soon, it's just I might as well just find out what happens. But I'm very yeah, yeah, yeah. excited for um for both of those. I really did like Andor. I think it started off a little slow, uh, yeah. but I think it's really. I, I this is the most that I think that we've ever been. Unless you've read the books, right? So I haven't read Star Wars books, but if you no, have been involved I. in like the Star Wars world. Um, you know, the most that we've gotten about how, like, the beginning of the rebellion basically has started and more of the, like, inner workings of it, right? Like, in the beginning, you know, before Luke, before Leia, before before all that. Yep. Yep. I, lo- I mean, I, I love Dandor. I absolutely love Dandor. And I love – I'm a big fan of – you know, not making things as simplistic, right? Um, and Andor made things complicated, right? And there yeah. wasn't just like a a you know they took they they took that kind of heroic narrative that we that you know that the star the original Star Wars movies were so much a part of, right? It was yeah. about you know this here's this uh, good versus evil kind of thing, and it put it in a much more kind of gritty context and much more complex and problematic, con- which is great. I love yeah. it. Yeah, love yeah, and it. I think it really put it into more of like a real setting, right? Like you could you totally. could uh, you can sympathize with. You know, um, uh, I don't know where I, I can't remember what planet it is, but the planet that Cassian lives on, right, with with yep. his mother or his adoptive mother, the workers there, like, you know what I mean? Just something as simple as that, and showing solidarity with the community against the empire. You know, the way that yep. oh, oh, sorry, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't no. seen it. Um, <laughs> but you know, the way that they they announce to the whole community when you have like imperial troopers coming through. You know yep. what I mean? Like you, it, yep. it, it, you're just like, oh, I could see that happening. Like communities do that today <laughs> yep 100 percent. so that's I, I was thrilled the, the other thing that you know i was a little bit bummed about it looks like they uh they put off the uh the launch of the next season of wheel of time oh, until like january or something yeah when is it june did you say no i said that's a shame oh i thought you said june because like, no. i was like i was like no don't tell me june i no, can't wait i know but they were teasing it for about. yeah they were teasing it for november right so that was the it was like, okay, great, great, great November mm-hmm. and blah, 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 blah. What's happening? Why is it not coming out? And it looks like it's not going to be until after Christmas now. So, uh, and who knows, right? There's not a, there's not a date launch because I am so looking forward to the, the next, the next year, next season. I am too. It was, I really enjoyed that one as well. I think a lot of these series have been doing pretty good. I haven't really disliked any of them so far. So, oh, I know the other one I had to ask you. Have you watched, um, um, oh God, I'm going to forget the name, but that's awful. The, um, 
Oh, God. It's the... Oh, God. It's been getting all sorts of really good play. Oh, shoot. What the heck's it called? I think it's on HBO. I want to keep on saying the replacements, but it's not the replacements. It's... uh. Oh my God! Let I do not I believe I have seen it. Yeah, it's like um, it's called the. Um, let me see if I can find it real quick. Um, <clears throat> I read these. I read the book, and had no idea this was ever going to be put. Um, um, oh, I'm not going to remember. I can't. It's uh, the peripheral. The peripheral. Oh. <laughs> That's the name of it. No, I have not. I have not seen it's, that. I'm about I'm about four episodes into that, and uh, it's a uh, it's a William Gibson book, I believe. It's one of his more kind of recent books, and uh, it's I'll tell you, reading it, I remember it, it, people have likened it back to one of his earlier books, a Neuromancer, um, and and I could totally see why because I remember in that uh, that original book when when I kind of read some of like his stuff, his early sci-fi, it was like and like trying to wrap my head around what's actually happening, right? Because it just felt so, you know. Like there's all these virtual things that are going on and the peripheral kind of has some elements of that. And it's uh, there's like this time travel component into this. It's this this kind of like virtual reality. It's this, you know, uh, it's kind of this like post not apocalyptic, but post crash, you know, and I think it takes place like in West Virginia, which makes it even that much more interesting. <laughs> right. You know, so it's like <clears throat> it's a it's a really what I've seen so far. I'm really, really liking the series. So um, that's another one. Yeah, I don't oh, cool. no, Well, now that you're explaining it, I don't know if I saw an episode or not. I'd have to go back and look at it. <clears throat> yeah, it's a. Uh, let me see. Perif. Yep, I just there it is. Let me see where it is. It is on uh, Amazon. It's Amazon. It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not HBO. Yeah. So, <clears throat> oh, okay. Yeah, I saw this cool. stuff. Yeah. No, I have not seen it. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Anyways, anyway, so we shall see. All right. Well, uh, I'm in the prom- trying to keep my promise of not making us go over two hours. <laughs> no, that's fine. I have I have a lot to do today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ditto, ditto right here too as well. But uh, um, well, hey, I'm so glad that you're able to come back on today. Uh, it's always uh, kind of a much better Friday when you're on. So uh, thank you. Look forward to the next time that we can uh, that we can do this again. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'll keep you updated and let you know what Fridays I have available. Sounds good. Sounds good. And I know that uh, uh, Cyril and I have been trying to kind of get back another time that we can make this happen. So uh, that's the end of my semester. Hopefully when the semester ends up, we're going to have Cyril back on and we're going to do some updates from the Beacon because they've been turning it up over there, too. As well. Oh, yes, they have. Awesome. I do enjoy the Wednesday show. Yep, yep, yep. Me too. Me too. All right, everybody. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder, creator and founder of Rage and Chicken. I want to remind you can help support this show by heading on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. You become a patron for as little as five bucks uh, a month. And look, you know, if you're watching this on YouTube, you're listening on the podcast, make sure you like the show, make sure you share it out with friends and leave us a review. That's how other people find the show. That's how other people can kind of join into this amazing, amazing community. And again, a shout out to all the amazing folks over on Mastodon who were incredibly welcoming and helped me get my feet um, on the ground over there at Union Place. So anyways, this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Amy, great talking to you. We'll talk to you soon. See ya. Bye. All right. See everybody. We are out of here. We'll see you Monday. Yes, we're going to be talking about misinformation and how to fight it. Monday, out to Coop Live, 7 p.m. We'll see you then. All right, everybody. See ya! Where are
Sound. 